This is a Full Circle podcast, connecting ideas with the power to act. This podcast is brought to you from our archives at Full Circle Brussels. We're a unique community of thinkers and doers discussing ideas that matter. Today, I'm introducing Belgian philosopher and political economist Philippe Van Parijs. Philippe Van Parijs directs the Hoover Chair of Economic and Social Ethics at the Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium. He is one of the founders of the Basic Income Earth Network. In 2011, Philippe was awarded the ARC Prize of the Free Word for actively promoting freedom of expression, and in 2001, the Frankie Prize, Belgium's most generous scientific prize. Sit back and enjoy the talk. The title for this evening was Basic Income, a Good Idea. I thought, what do you mean, a good idea? It's a brilliant idea. And also, at least, I thought when the idea came to me about uh, 30 years ago, 19, a bit more than 30 years ago. And you know, when you suddenly, it must have happened to some of you, when suddenly you think you have a brilliant idea, then you must immediately think one of the following two propositions must be true. One is that, after all, this idea may have some fatal flaws which you haven't discovered yet. Or, second possibility, other people, possibly many people, have had the same idea before. Well, 30 years later, you know, I've heard, I've been talking about this on the five continents and I've heard about 100, 574 objections to the idea. And I can see there are difficulties but no fatal flaw. On the other hand, in the 30 years, gradually, bit by bit, I started discovering that a number of other people had this marvelous idea before me, including eminent people who you've heard of. So what I'm going to do here is first clarify what the idea is and what it's not. And um, next, maybe, I mean, as I go along, I'll also uh, indicate why this simple, but apparently also quite absurd idea might nevertheless be justified. Um, then I'll give a very short uh, historical overview uh, about the origin, multiple origins of uh, this idea and where the debate really happened and then died out again and what the prospects are now. And then I'll finish just by saying, well, what now? What do I propose uh, now, today, in terms of amounts? On what scale, at what level, of uh, what political level? And uh, how could it be funded? So first, the ID. So, uh, there is already something that exists in a number of our countries, not all our countries, I mean member states of the European Union, which is a guaranteed minimum income scheme. Uh, in Belgium we called it uh, Minimex for a long time, uh, now it's called Leflon uh, on one side of the linguistic border and uh, Revenu d'Integration I think on the other. And uh, it's a form of minimum income that is guaranteed to every citizen irrespective of whether that person worked 
or didn't work in the past contributed to the social security system or not. And that also exists in other countries and the revenu, what used to be called revenu minimum d'insertion, for example, in France or Sozialhilfe in Germany, etc., based on in, in the Netherlands. Okay? But that's not a basic income. A basic income differs from that, those existing systems in three ways. One, it's strictly individual. Two, it is universal. And three, it's unconditional with respect to work. And I'll go through each of these three features in turn. First one, strictly individual. By that, it's not only meant that the benefit is paid to every adult member of the household, not just to the head of the household, but what's also meant is that the amount is the same for irrespective of the composition of the household. So that means that if you live alone or if you live with another adult or two other adults, the amount is the same. First sight, this is absurd, right? Because there is something called economies of scale, uh, which means that it costs less per capita to live uh, in a household of two or three or more adults than it does if you live alone. So why strictly individual? Well, you think uh, at least about, just to give you a hint, uh, about these two considerations. One is this. It used to be the case that it wasn't too difficult to determine whether a person was uh, forming a household with just one person or a household with two. You just asked, show me your identity card and I'll check whether you are married or not. Hmm? This was a proxy, not perfect, but worked pretty well at some point. Now, how many people do you know who are still formally married but don't live together? But above all, how many people do you know who live together and are not married? And of course, you don't want to give a different treatment to people who live together without being married and people living together while being married. So you need to go for all sorts of other indicators. At some point uh, in Holland, for example, they said, uh, well, we need to see who are vorder uh, dealers, people who share the front door. Then I realized that's not enough, really. You need to see whether they, sh they share the wash basin. And uh, then you need to go and check whether there are at least two toothbrushes that are wet at the same time in the morning and all those other things. So you realize that, uh, and, and, and then, I mean, what does it mean? Do you need to give a different status to people who really live as a couple and people, what about what uh, we call here a, in colloque, uh, in colloque, collocation with various people? So, so you can easily see that in the sort of society in which we live now, well, uh, making this difference uh, between people who are single or not uh, starts being problematic far more than in the past. Moreover, moreover, isn't it a good thing, a good thing, if people live together, share a fridge, share a housing, save on, uh, on, uh, on heating costs and all the rest, huh? in addition to uh, reducing uh, loneliness and so on. So why should we punish people if uh, two pensioners, for example, decide to live together? And you punish them by saying, oh, very good, bravo, we like you to do that. And as a, as a reward, we withdraw uh, part of your benefit. 
So that's the first notion. I'm not exhausting the discussion of that first aspect, first aspect, but perhaps having a strictly individual <coughs> benefit is not as absurd as it seems, especially today for the two reasons I just mentioned. But then next, that seems more problematic. I said universal. Universal means, like for universal child, uh, child benefits, for example, it means that uh, you don't uh, restrict the basic income to the poor. There is no means test. It's given to everyone irrespective of the income from other sources. So it's given to the richest people in the country. Uh, uh, here we like to mention Albert Frère, who certainly if there is one person who doesn't need a basic income, well, he'll receive a basic income too. You give it to the rich as well as to the poor. Isn't that, I mean, we don't have enough money to do all sorts of services. Isn't that absurd to waste our valuable money on these rich people who don't need, they wouldn't know, they wouldn't even notice they received the basic income. Uh, uh, so why waste the money in this way? And what's crucial here is to understand that giving a basic income to the rich is not better to, for the rich. It's better for the poor. It's better for the poor too. Why? Here comes uh, come a number of considerations. I'll just mention two. Uh, one is what's commonly known as the unemployment trap or the poverty trap. What is that? Well, under the current system, hmm, described it in a bit more complex, but in stylized fashion, what happens if you have no income at some point and you are, you are poor, you receive a benefit, this uh, guaranteed minimum income as we know it, and then you find a little part-time job, not very well paid because uh, your, your skills are not that great, and then people say, wonderful, that's what we'd like you to do. And as a reward, we withdraw you the benefit. For every euro you earn through your work, we take one euro of the benefit away because it's only meant for the poor. That means there is a poverty level, and then we check your income, and we make up the difference with the poverty level. So in economic jargon, it amounts to having an effective marginal rate of tax of 100% for the poorest people. How do you avoid that? Basic income, universal. Instead of having a safety net, you give a floor. And so this floor, you keep it, you can stand on it, if, and given that you receive it irrespective of your income, well, as soon as you earn any amount of money, it's added to your floor, huh? to the basic income to which you are entitled. Hmm? So that's one important consideration to bear, to bear in mind when you discuss the universality. Giving to the rich as well as to the poor hmm, is not better for the rich, it's better for the poor for this first reason. It gets rid of this so-called poverty trap or unemployment trap. Moreover, and that's a second important uh, dimension, it avoids stigmatization. We have, in many countries, universal child benefits. No one is ashamed of receiving this universal child benefit. It's given to all, rich and poor. 
Some countries, you have targeted benefits, child benefits, so targeted benefits in general, for which you need to apply. You need to say, I'm destitute, I'm poor, you need, there is a whole procedure. And so therefore, unavoidably, there is stigma attached to a benefit that is given only to the poor. It's given to you because you are, you are poor, you are unable to, uh, to, 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 to look after yourselves and your family, and so we are willing, society is willing to give you something. And because of this stigmatization, often there is, for all these means-tested benefits, the rate of take-up is much lower than in the case of universal benefits, in the sense that many people, many poor people entitled to it, don't apply to it, partly for lack of information, but partly because they are ashamed of claiming it, and therefore you have a level of poverty far higher if you have uh, means-tested benefit than if you have universal benefits. So, that's, these are these two of the considerations that justify the second feature, which is the universal nature, the fact that it's paid to the rich as well as to the poor. Finally, the third feature, which is no doubt the most scandalous of the three, which is that it's given to people irrespective of any work condition. So it's given to people who are full-time workers, people who are retirees, people who are part-time workers, uh, people who, st who are students, people who are getting training, people who stay at home to look uh, after their children, and indeed people who just choose not to do anything at all. Hmm? And you give a basic income to these people. So isn't this grossly unfair? Isn't this outrageous, really? Um, well, the one important consideration here is that um, is the following, and here I'll so to to make my presentations too long. Um, I want you really then to focus on the crucial complementarity between universality, the second feature, and uh, unconditionality, the third feature. These two things must go together. Huh? That is, the first feature, and the first of these two, two features, so universality is what enables you to get rid of the unemployment trap. But the second feature, yeah, the unconditionality, is what enables you to get rid of the employment trap. One of the very first persons who started to argue in favor of a basic income I discovered that after I, the idea came to me uh, in the early 80s, was from about 1978, a professor of social medicine at the Vrije Universiteit Amsterdam, Protestant University in Amsterdam. And he was struck uh, in, with his patients by the fact that you had, at the same time, people who came to him who were sick because they couldn't find a job, and other people, and because they, they, they couldn't work, they didn't work enough, and other people who were sick because they worked too much, right? I said, surely there is something wrong in this sort of society, something sick about the society itself. Uh, if it makes people sick in these two uh, uh, contradictory uh, ways, uh, opposing ways, so there must be a way uh, of making things better. And that's how he came to the idea of the basic income, which would be both universal and unconditional, because it's the unconditionality that makes it possible for people 
to say, okay, I keep a full entitlement to this basic income, uh, to this flow, but I reduce my working time. Or I want to breathe a little bit and uh, think about doing something else or get further training and so on. And thereby, I free some job that can then be filled by some of the people who would like to have a job and don't have one. Uh, so, therefore, because of this last feature, you can see basic income as a sort of intelligent, supple, flexible way of sharing working times, of sharing jobs between uh, people. At the same time, and so the reason why it's so important is that also this third feature is what will help us to work. Not uh, at first sight, it's something that you think, well, people will just take the basic income and spend their time watching television. It's also, and the, the, it all depends on the number of features to which I'll return, uh, but it's, it's on the contrary. It should be something that will enable us to work on the whole more, but a better quality of jobs, and to work also longer in our lives, providing the educational system, the training system is organized at the same time. Because, because of this flow, this flow creates the conditions for a much more fluid, smooth, uh, back and forth between work, training, education in a broad sense, and then all sorts of voluntary activities, in particular within the household, looking after uh, your children or after uh, frail persons, and all this can happen in a much more fluid way. And this is also what we need in our society. We need uh, a constant uh, first uh, building up of human capital, constant updating of human capital, so that we can sort of uh, uh, work a bit less when we feel it's time to avoid a burnout, but also work more throughout our life because we'll be able to retrain uh, in time. So you really have these two features that must be defended at the same time. So what universality in order to avoid the unemployment trap and unconditionality in order to avoid the employment uh, trap. The first one, universality is essential to avoid exclusion, but the second one is essential to avoid exploitation. Because if you had, and that's very crucial, I mean, I realized that again last week when I had a debate here in, at the University of Brussels with a, a trade unionist, and so this is really uh, crucial to see um, then the, the dual effect of these two uh, features. Because some people say, both in defense and against the basic income, that the basic income will lead to lower wages because people already receive an income and so the employers will take advantage of it by only paying the, uh, the remainder, I mean, the, the, what's, what's needed in order to, to, to fill in, in order to achieve the same level of income as you have now. So you can say this will lead to lower wages because part of it is paid for by the state, you could say. And other people say, on the contrary, it will lead to higher wages because people have the opportunity of having this income and they won't accept to do the same sort of job for the same, for the same wage. And both arguments are used both as an advantage by some of basic income and, and as a disadvantage of it, depending on whether you think that higher wages are a good thing or low wages are a good thing. But who is right? Both are right. Both are right and that is crucial in the argument for basic income. 
Both are right, but they apply to different sort of jobs. That is, if you have a really disgusting job that doesn't provide you with any training, with any further opportunities, with uh, uh, pathetic relationships with uh, uh, your, your boss, well, if you have uh, your basic income and thereby other options, not just staying at home to watch television, but other possibilities, helping you, your sister run a, a shop, uh, getting some more training, whatever, then you'll say, well, I stopped doing this sort of job. And therefore, if the employer will then either uh, need to replace that job by a, by a machine, if that is possible, but often it's not possible, or, uh, or, or the, the employer will have to try to improve the quality of their job in various ways, and that can be done in various ways. In, uh, uh, or if uh, he's either not able or not willing to do uh, either of these two things, he will have to pay a higher wage in order to attract people to these jobs huh, that are unattractive in themselves or in terms of the prospects they provide. On the other hand, jobs that are attractive uh, in themselves, in particular, or all that are attractive because of the training they, they provide, well, these jobs will find it easier to attract people. Indeed, some jobs which don't exist now because they don't pay enough will become viable as a result. Think of uh, internships. Internships either not paid at all or paid at a very low rate. They are a sort of luxury which can only be afforded by young people whose parents are willing to pay a basic income to them and keep supporting them for a while. If you want to democratize this possibility, spread it far more widely, you need something like a basic income. The least bureaucratic way of providing that is a basic income that enables you to accept an activity that provides you with useful training without paying you enough, uh, in a snapshot way, immediately enough to feed yourself uh, decently and uh, to, to feed uh, your family. So. Uh, that's why the, these two features, you need really to see them together. And it's because of this combination that you can then defend basic income as one version of an active welfare state. A welfare state that doesn't make people passive on the country, that helps them become more active than they currently are, but the most emancipatory form of uh, this active welfare state. And that is, and so, one way of seeing it is that is this and so and at the same time that's the only hint we can return to that in discussion and make about the, the fundamental justification it's really and basic income uh, is universal basic income it may be absurd at first sight but if you believe both in the importance of equality and in the importance of freedom it's still possible to be against basic income, even strongly against basic income, but you'll need to justify it. Because if you are both in favor of equality and in favor of freedom, you must be at least intrigued by the idea of basic income, if not really attracted uh, by the idea of, uh, of basic income. And of course, not if you say, well, what we need is just equality at all price. We don't care about freedom. Okay, then you may not you may think that basic income gives a bit too much freedom to people. Or if you think you can be in, f in favor of freedom without being in favor of, uh, of, e of equality, but then 
with a sort of purely formal notion of freedom uh, without really giving the resources to all the people to use the freedom, then you can also be against basic income for reasons of principle. But if you believe in both equality and freedom, surely you must, uh, you are forced to give some sort to basic income. Even if you, for pragmatic reasons or even principles reasons, you may be against it. Then a short uh, uh, word about the history. So where did this idea, and this idea, like all good ideas, had uh, many fathers and mothers, uh, but as far as we know, uh, who gave, uh, who came first uh, to this idea? No doubt, many people could, came to this idea, but are not remembered at all because they never wrote anything down. They, maybe never talked, uh, even talked about it uh, to their friends because they thought it too, might be, sound a bit too silly to, as, a, as a solution to the problems we have. Well, I'll uh, give, I, how many more minutes do I have? Five? Five? Okay, yeah. Um, <coughs> so, uh, very brief overview. Again, to help you, uh, it also helps this historical overview then to um, and distinguish against the idea, so the, the, the general idea of a guaranteed minimum income and the specific idea of an unconditional uh, basic income. The general idea of uh, a guarantee of subsistence to all, secured by the public authorities, um, was first articulated in a little book published uh, uh, in uh, 1526th century, beginning of the 26th century, by a man called Juan Luis Vives of Spanish origin, Valencia, uh, who went to Paris, was of Jewish converso origin, had to uh, leave uh, Spain because of the Inquisition, uh, studied at the Sorbonne, and then came Erasmus, uh, made him come to Louvain, where he taught for a while, he taught in Oxford for a little while, and he published 1526, this book, De Subventione Pauperum, on the assistance to the poor, which can be regarded as the first uh, plea for some sort, not only public uh, assistance, but for any form of welfare state. But it was extremely conditional, and so it was uh, first given in kind rather than in cash. It was only given on a condition of uh, being prepared to work. It was certainly not uh, strictly individual, but household-based, and it was restricted to the poor, assistance to the poor. Okay. Then, and that traveled through time, it inspired uh, the poor laws uh, uh, in Britain, and you could say that our uh, Borsa Familia in Brazil, or our Revenu Minimum d'Insertion, or whatever, they are sort of uh, elaborate form, developed uh, forms of that initial ID. Then the other uh, important ID that helped shape, in fact, the bulk of our current welfare state was firm, first formulated by a brilliant mathematician and philosopher uh, in a posthumous book uh, published just uh, after the French Revolution, Le Marquis de Condorcet, uh, known for all sorts of things, and, uh, but in uh, the book he published while he was in hiding, just before uh, dying in prison, uh, he uh, introduced the idea of social insurance, where he, as the, which then became uh, the, the main remedy uh, for uh, poverty, saying, well, in order to, uh, to fight poverty, the best way is to get all the workers to contribute to an insurance system and 
the, 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 this would then fund uh, benefits uh, for healthcare, for their pensions, for the pensions of their widows, also if, uh, if they happen to die uh, before, before their widows, which happened very, uh, very often. And that was then formulated at the end of the 18th century and first implemented into a reality under uh, Bismarck in Germany at the end of the 19th century. Okay. And some people thought this would, could then replace the whole of the social assistance uh, system. But then it was combined in various ways, and what we have today is a combination of the Vive scheme, you could say, and the Condorcet scheme. The idea of the basic income and conditional basic income itself was first formulated, or we are close to a formulation of a proposal of this sort, also at the time of the, rev of the French Revolution by a good close friend of Condorcet called Thomas Paine, who was also one of the main ideologues of uh, the French and the uh, American Revolution. He was English. Uh, himself, and in a little uh, booklet uh, under the title Agrarian Justice, uh, written for the French uh, Directoire, he advocated a non-conditional endowment and non-conditional pension as a sort of reflection of the fact that we are all the joint owners of the earth. Land is common, it's appropriated by some, so the value of the land, the rent on the land, must be distributed to all the co-owners of the land, and this is all of us. But the form it should take in his view was a sort of basic endowment at the age of 21 for every man or woman and uh, a basic pension from unconditional from the age of 50. Hmm? So that was, and it was not quite a basic income. Then there was a man who hated Thomas uh, Paine because he was so much more famous than him, but he was called Thomas Spence, who was a, an English uh, school teacher very radical, he said this is far too stingy, what we need is really a basic income throughout life and in a little pamphlet called The Rights of Infants he proposed uh, exactly for the first time basic income but at a municipal uh, level. The first one to propose a real basic income on a national level lived here very nearby. He was called Joseph Charlier, 1848, uh, the same year as Marx was uh, wrote the Communist Manifesto near the Avenue Louise. He was uh, in another neighborhood of Brussels. He was writing a, a book called Solution du Problème Social. And his Solution du Problème Social was what he called the Dividend Territorial, which was really the same idea as uh, in Paine or in Spence, common ownership of the land, in his view, common ownership of all real estate, and it's the rent on that which could be distributed to all uh, in, a, in an equal way, as a matter of justice and not of charity. So that's it uh, for by way of history, so we can talk about the prospects now. I'll just add that uh, that's what I promised to say. If you ask uh, what sort of level, what sort of, of amount, I'll just say this. Uh, for if you ask uh, the general question in the long term, I say the highest sustainable level on the highest uh, imaginable scale. It can be the highest sustainable level, if possible, at the world scale. That's the general vision. Uh, the, the, if you ask me uh, what about Belgium now, I'll say, and I, can, I won't explain why, uh, I'll say for Belgium now, 427 euros. Okay? But I'm, uh, but I'm also, at the same time as that, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, al I'm also, I won't explain now, I said, 
but at the same time, we must not only act at the Belgian level, it's also urgent, partly for independent reasons of those I've given, to act at the European level in favor of a euro dividend funded by VAT at the European level of 200 euros on average, but that would be modulated according to the purchasing power in every country. So it would be a bit less in euros in Bulgaria uh, than it is in Belgium. I'll finish here. Thanks for listening to our talk. We'll be back soon with more thought-provoking content. So if you enjoyed this talk, please consider following our podcast on Spotify and other podcast streaming services. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with our events at Full Circle Ideas on Facebook or watch our other talks and interviews on YouTube at Full Circle Brussels. Until next time.